Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Returning to the pod today is my frequent, always informative and entertaining guest, Ted Jessup. Ted is a writer and a performer with one of those, of course, you're a writer backgrounds. Born in Switzerland to an American father who was the CIA station chief, educated all over the world, lived a very fast times in the Washington, D.C. suburbs existence, as I hope you'll one day be able to experience yourself if his excellent screenplay for a limited run series based on his suburban D.C. high school years gets produced, as it should, Hollywood, if you're listening. Ted's written many of the most beloved Family Guy episodes. He's written for Kilborn, Al Franken, VH1, MTV, and he was a beloved cast member and writer on a series we produced here at Meeting House Productions called World's Dumbest on True TV. He contributed the high comedy. He's genuinely possessive of one of the sharpest and funniest minds I've ever had the good fortune to work with. He's always welcome here at the Full Casting Crew podcast. Ted, welcome back. Oh my God! Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. I'm honored. Thank you. And especially to do this film, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which has been a fave of mine, and it fits in perfectly to uh, the quadrilogy of related <laughs> films that I've done here: <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, Deliverance, Odessa File, and Fast Times. It's true. I... Like the Gottman relationship method, the four horsemen of. Yeah, I hadn't thought. I hadn't think. I hadn't thought to link what what links each of those films, but I'm sure there's something there that we can explicate upon. Every kind of relationship is represented in these four films. Anyway, it's a favorite. There are a lot of movies you wouldn't have without it. I think it's uniquely sort of sweet and tender. You know, as I'm sure you know, it was sort of panned as being sort of crude and scuzzy at the time, but in retrospect, it's been revisited and people realize it's actually a very sort of sweet, innocent look at the vulnerability of teenagers during late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, has iconic people in it, you know, has one of the greatest assemblages of people that would be future stars mm -hmm. of any movie that was just meant to be a sort of, you know, Teen romp. For people that don't know, just a little bit of the background of the origin. This was this film has its origin in a book that Cameron Crowe, who was then, I believe, 21 or 22 years old, was essentially commissioned to write. And the pitch, as I understand it, that he made to his publisher was, and he had been a writer since the age of seven. Everyone's probably familiar with the life of Cameron Crowe. You've seen Almost Famous. He, he was writing for Rolling Stone at 16, 17. He was on the road with bands, Led Zeppelin. He had been around, but he still looked like a teenager when he was 21 or 22. And I guess at this time, you know, this was when America was sort of discovering teens. I don't know. Do you think that's something that's happened in every generation? Or was this a specific to the 70s because the teens were so fucked up and weird? You know, I mean, you had the sort of, um, you know, when youth culture sort of emerged as its own terrifying thing with, you know, Marlon Brando in the 50s and James Dean. And then you had this sort of different kind of high school nostalgia movie with American Graffiti and Animal House. This was sort of a different kind of thing. I mean, it 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 was more realistic, less kind of campy, uh, and not nostalgic, only nostalgic to look at now. And, you know, there are things like, you know, Sean Penn is sort of, you know, plays this character uh, that became iconic. He's just sort of spiced throughout the thing. He's not a main character. 
but I don't think you'd have Big Lebowski or, you know, Valley Stoner characters that became staples in, you know, American cinema after that. But yeah, I think this was a unique, you certainly wouldn't have John Hughes movies um, that came after this, um, you know, that had their own sort of universe of Richies and Poories, mm -hmm. which this doesn't have at all. It's sort of, yeah. you know, they're all kind of one class. The parents are kind of absent, <laughs> absent, uh, because I think it's about, you know, kids facing a future feeling really alone, whether it's sexuality, drugs, you know, relationships, jobs. And there isn't a heavy parental. There isn't like a parallel action thing of parental lives. Over the Edge would be the film that preceded this as a exploration of real teen life right that we did that on the pod with uh, my friend rick brown and it's still a great movie that doesn't hold it holds up maybe not quite as well as fast times hold up i just saw fast times two weeks ago just randomly after you and i decided to do this film the paris theater which ironically is now owned by netflix this iconic theater in new york city but to their credit, they bought it and they use it for a variety of interesting film programming. And one of the things they recently did was they had Amy Heckerling present Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So I got to see it in 35 millimeter in a theater with a packed theater on a Saturday afternoon in New York. And I had never seen the film in a theater. So that was amazing to see how, how well it still played on many, many levels. But... Cameron Crowe's book, it's interesting. I don't know if you got a chance to read much of the book. I'm still only about two thirds of the way through it. It's very long. It's very hard to get, bizarrely. It's out of print. You would think a book that's the source material for a film this beloved would be in print. I have to speculate, and I don't know this for a fact, but I speculate he probably wants it not to be in print. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure it would be, <laughs> right? He, he probably has the power to get it back in print or publish it himself. It, was it originally a Rolling Stone? No. Kind of a piece no. Or but anyway, he's, he embedded himself yes. in high school. Now, I have to speculate a little bit. And this is complete speculation. I, I think it's fascinating. I was recently talking about when you can really see the effect of a director on material as a fan of movies, because so much is made of directors. I used the analogy in the last episode that it's kind of like a quarterback in the NFL. They probably get too much credit when everything works out, and they get too much blame when it doesn't. In this case, having read the book, having read the screenplay, and having seen the film, it's a better film than it is a screenplay, and it's a better screenplay than it is a book, which is kind of fascinating because the screenplay takes the best characters of this very long book, which is almost a day-to-day -day kind of diary of life in a, in a valley, California, suburban high school. It's not that engaging of a read, except to see some of the lines from some of your favorite characters rendered verbatim in the book. But the screenplay benefits from being able to pluck out the characters and the best lines without really worrying about a very linear story, because there isn't one. And then the movie is improved even upon the screenplay by Amy Heckerling entirely. Right. I put it in her, I put that in, in, in her column because all of what makes the movie still special, the sweetness you talked about, the, the, the truth of the sexual scenes, that all really came from her. Like the way the, the, way the sex scenes are written in the book, for example, the, the got to be somebody's baby dugout scene, uh, with, which the book does have that brilliant use of the, 
the graffiti and the the you know the the, the yeah. unspecialness of this supposedly special moment for Stacy. Old cinder blocks, cinder blocks, words, the light, and then which, a guy you know, who seemingly sort of handsome and cool is yeah. going to be a sort of like a premature ejaculating dick who, <laughs> you know never calls her but maybe sends some flowers but you know she's the one who in the book stacy is the aggressor in that scene he, right. he doesn't want to make a move he's afraid she he's called a pussy in the book and it's stacy who kind of jump starts the action whereas heckerling was so smart i think to flip that around and use jennifer jason lee's brilliant kind of persona to make that scene as poignant as it really is and as real as it really is. Well, yeah, she makes all the characters sort of three-dimensional. I mean, Stacy's curious and interested in sex, but hesitant and frightened. Um, you know, she probably should end up with a nice guy, but, you know, girls are more advanced and, mm -hmm. and it's just too, you know, kind of nerdy and frightened. But yeah, she she makes it into something that's, uh, you know, not exploitative and very real and and unpleasant, like somebody's first experiences yeah. are. And you know, this is like a year after Porky's or and stuff <laughs> right, like that. Right. So it's not about like just insane, right. you know, locker room scenes and horniness. It's about in curio a curiosity kids have, but a real you know insecurity, nervousness, and incompetence, even super cocky. Damone. Damone, you know, is terrible, even though he's super confident and, uh, you know, gets right in there and betrays his friend. You know, he kind of sucks and then dashes away. But he's one of the great characters. He is um, great. He, you know, interestingly, you said I mentioned Porky's like Universal. They just certainly did Animal House. And you can see the Universal slash Animal House influence at the end of Fast Times, all of the character updates are basically what Universal did in Animal House, right? With all your favorite, Senator John Blutarski. So they sort of imposed that again on this film. That wasn't originally something they were and, going and to do. And what Lucas did in American Graffiti. And American Graffiti, which is a huge influence on Heckerling. She really wanted to make a new American Graffiti for 70s teens. And I, th I think she did. Yeah. It, it was amazing to hear her talk about how much they did not get what she was doing in the dailies while this movie was being filmed up to the point of sending John Landis, the director of animal house down to the set to report back on whether or not he <laughs> thought she should be fired. And I think the first scene they saw was either the dugout scene, or it might've been the, it might've been the pool house scene with Damone and Stacy. And of course they were expecting a porky sex comedy. That's what they thought they were buying. And all of the artwork yeah. that you can see that they specced up before the movie was released is completely the wrong artwork for this type of movie. It's very much a Porky's sex movie. And of course, that's not what they were getting. And they thought, isn't this supposed to be funny? So they sent John Landis down there. And to his credit, he reported back. She does a funny John Landis imitation. He, he reported back to Art Linson or the other suits at Universal. Like, she's doing great. Leave her alone. Oh, my God. It's going to be fine. Uh, but they kind of wanted to get also, rid of her. I'm about to kill her star's father. So... <laughs> We're gonna have to cut that out of of the eventual Ted. We're just we're making progress on your on your script landing in Netflix. Don't kill it now. He's a loose cannon. So you know, yeah, and, and you know, another example of that is the, you know, the the girls are rehearsing sort of how to give a blowjob with mm -hmm. carrots. They're like variables that I might not be good at. Like what variables? Like you know, giving blowjobs. What's the big deal? 
I never did it. You've never given a blowjob? Never? Stace, there's nothing to it. It's so easy. Come on. Let's check it out. Sure. Relax your throat muscles. Don't bite. <laughs> I slide it in. Try it again. Slowly, in and out. You got it. Okay. They wanted a completely lascivious, sort of sucked down, gross, you know, yeah. sexual thing. And, you know, it's meant to be sort of tentative and nervous. Right. Um, it's also kind of funny when they're observed and they just sort of giggle as opposed to like, oh, my God, it's so. Yes. Because you know, every kid is kind of curious and speculative and nervous. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that's another example of that. And then I. You know, in the Damone scene, I think she wanted his full frontal nudity to kind of equalize the playing field. And they were like, no, no, women only. Yeah, that'll make it that'll make it an X rated feature. And she asked why. And the answer was the the male genitalia is not not even not, not that aggressive. it's it's aggressive. That's the word. Yes. Yeah, sorry. It's aggressive just in its state, just in its flaccid state. They viewed it as aggressive and it would have led to an X rating. Now, actually, in the in the criterion, which I have right here on my wall, uh, they do. She did actually put back in the Damone frontal nudity scene, and the scene is cut a little different than even what you can see on streaming. I think if you get the criterion, and it's just a, a quick flash, right? It's a quick flash, and it's a remarkable scene. There's a there's a featurette on the on the criterion where they talk about. For, for a lot of women, for a lot of filmmakers now, that scene with Stacey and Damone, and particularly the way Jennifer Jason Lee sits up at the end of the scene and is sort of there in her in her body in such a, a normal way in this yeah. ab, in this abnormal situation of a film set, of course, but her self-possessedness, her comfort with herself and her confusion over what just happened and her dawning realization that this overconfident guy is a fumbling, bumbling, uh, shy, you know, doesn't have any idea person underneath this exterior. There's so much going on in this scene, which left to the universal executives would just be a porky's kind of like, Ooh, got my nuts off. Right. In terms of somebody, you know, she's sort of nervous and it seems like he's the pursuer in the beginning. And then in that moment you're talking about where she sits up, She's sort of not self-conscious physically, right? but on her face is an expression that, you know, has to have registered on so many girls. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck was that? Right. Like, don't tell me that was sex. Like, and now this guy's fucking darting. I gotta go, Stacey. Sorry. <laughs> Um, you got any iced tea? I mean, the way he, the way Romana says that, that's like the first, I think that's the first crack in his armor is when he's sitting at her kitchen table before they go to the pool house. Yeah. And he goes, this is really great iced tea. You know, it's like that. It's just so brilliant the way the screenplay and she folds in his dawning discomfort, the, the cracking of his little visage as the coolest guy in school, which then reaches its crescendo with, the great scene between them at the football field when she tells him that she's pregnant as a result of this liaison. I hope this is important, you know, because I could be blowing a big deal. Mike, I just, I just want 
you to know that I'm pregnant. How do you know it's mine? I mean, we only did it once. I haven't been with anybody else. I know it's yours. Jesus. I mean, it was your idea. You wanted to do it. I. You wanted it more than I did. No. Take that back. All right, all right. Take it back. Look, we got to do something about it. I mean, uh, we got to get an abortion. My brother Art got his girlfriend one once. It's simple. I mean, it's no big deal. Yeah, I, I got that plan. Um, it's going to cost $150 at the free clinic. Doesn't sound free to me. <laughs> I suppose you want me to pay for it. Half, OK? And a ride to the clinic? $75 and a ride. And they play that scene so realistically, you know, where he's at first defiant. Do you think, well, how do you know it's mine? Like, you wanted it more than I did. And she says, no, take that back. And he does take it back. And he's purely transactional. 75 yeah. bucks yeah. in a ride. 75 bucks in a okay. ride. Okay. <laughs> you know, before that, you know, he's like a selfish, you know, when Rat calls him, you know, I lost my wallet. Yes. He's like, I'm really busy. Rat, I'm really kind of busy right now. <laughs> Watching Leave It to Beaver and drinking milk. What I loved yeah, in the book, what I found. What I loved in the book, I wish they. I don't know why. I guess it's just too obscure because I don't even know what it is. In the book, Damone comes home from school every day and pours himself a Tia Maria and milk. What is Tia Maria? Is that like a coffee liqueur or something? Yeah, I think so. That's what he makes um, himself. But he, they don't, he doesn't do it in the movie. He just he's drinking milk out of a carton. Their rooms are really great too. You see three or four of the kids. Totally rooms which have great sort of poster art and you know from from spicoli's to Stacy's mm -hmm. to demones she just must have had great casting instincts to basically pull 20 people all of whom would have great careers yeah you know phoebe cates you know jennifer jason lee sean penn nicholas cage mm -hmm. anthony Edwards. i mean just all the way down the line you know, Stoltz. Yeah. Just all these people that were great. They must have all killed it. This came out, Amy Heckerling says this a couple places, that two years later, they probably wouldn't have been able to make this film because this is just before the Reagan era backlash of moral conservatism that would sweep through with things like the, you know, Just Say No and the, uh, the PMRC later in the earlier 90s. Like, this concept that we must protect the teenagers who are just these innocent fawns that the world will prey upon. Also, uh, yeah, it's culturally still 70s. Yes. It's still stoner, hippie, long hair. The music is still really 70s. It's, you know, there are a couple of kind of pre-80s, like, yeah. but it's mostly, you know, Jackson Brown, Led Zeppelin, you know, Eagles kind of, um, uh, kind of country rock, pop, Southern California music. It's almost instantly nostalgic when it's released because yeah. the Reagan era ushers in, you know, a totally different kind of harder, sort of punkier, less mm -hmm. innocent music. And I just watched this documentary last night, Kubrick on Kubrick, which is a really cool documentary that's comprised entirely of the audio of interviews that Kubrick granted this French film critic, Michel Ciment who uh, was one of the few people to really interview Kubrick at length throughout his career. 
And in it, he describes the job of the director. He says something like, it is exhausting to be the director because it necessitates conflict with almost everyone, almost everyone on your set. Because I think Michelle Cement asked him a question about how he works with actors. And of course, Kubrick is very famous for, you know, 118 takes and breaking people down over durations. But he's after something very specific. And he sort of talks in this documentary about if you really want it to be perfect and you want it to be what you have a vision for, you're going to have conflicts with with actors, with your cinematographer, with your studio executives, certainly. And Amy Heckerling's comments about the making of this film really bear that out because you can imagine how annoying it must be to have to fight for We Got the Beat to start the film under the credit sequence. Azoff, whose roster of acts populates the soundtrack. And that's really the part of the genesis for the green light of the film. I heard someone say in one of the featurettes was, you have to understand Amy and Cameron, Irving puts together soundtracks and then looks for films that can match the soundtrack. And wow. I, I think that's, there's a, there's a sort of crass commercial aspect to why this was allowed to happen. And, you know, like FM, another famous Irving Azoff uh, soundtrack film is kind of similar. And so one of the battles that they had to fight was there's the song Raised on Radio, which is by the Ravens, which is used when Brad is uh, washing the, what's he call it? The, the cruiser, cruising vessel. the cruising vessel. <laughs> yes. That's what they wanted to be the theme song uh, under the credit sequence. And Cameron and Amy Heckerling described herself as kind of a more of a punk, more of a, you know, she's very New York, very thick New York accent. She was much more into the punk movement and the punk scene and wanted edgier music. And in the screening that I saw it was pretty funny. She never mentioned Irving Azoff by name. She kept saying one of the producers or the other producer. Now, this is a very literate, film literate group at the Paris Theater that's attending this screening. Um, I don't presume that everyone knows who Irving Azoff is or what his reputation in the music or entertainment business is, but certainly in this crowd, people knew who he was enough. I thought it was very pointed that all these years later, she still did not mention him by name, but she mentioned... Uh, all the other producers by name. It was very clear that the battles that had been fought, you know, in the making of this film were sure. still pretty fresh. And that was one of them. And she was right, obviously. Like, that is exactly the well, song. He's a scary guy. She probably didn't want to mention him publicly. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe I'll get in trouble for doing it. It's funny it, so. you mentioned Kubrick. My mother just died four days ago. And one of her first, she was uh, almost 100. But one of her first jobs in New York was, in the photo department of Look Magazine. Wow. 
And her assistant was 16-year-old Stanley Cooper. No way. Are you serious? Well, they cover that yeah, in this doc. Just, There's a whole section know, of that. Amateur. Um, yeah, this is a picture he took of her and another guy in the office. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, he was just a sort of 16-year-old amateur photographer who hit on all the girls. Kind of, <laughs> oh, well, it's funny because um, he, he in the doc, he talks about working at Look, and he says, you know, most of the assignments were pretty dumb. He's like, one of the assignments was like, can, is an athlete stronger than a baby? That was like a big two page photo spread. He's like, I had to go find this athlete and a baby. And I had to like get the athlete to try and squat like a baby. And that's what he was largely photographing. Everyone always sort of romanticizes this era of Kubrick's life. Like he's a street photographer for Look Magazine. He did get to right. do some of that eventually, but the, the vast majority of his oeuvre then was these like, these really kind of cheesy look magazine kinds of things. But he talks about it in the doc. You should check it out because they, they show quite a lot of the photos. Wow, I'll check it out. That's amazing. A couple of other important things that I think Amy Heckerling contributed amongst the many important things that she contributed. One of them is the idea to set things in and around the mall, which I'm not sure, that's certainly not a thing in the book. She She's humorously describes this as having to do with her agoraphobia. She's like, I'm a New Yorker. I don't like to go outside. I don't know anything about outdoor California. Uh, so I wanted it all kind of self-contained within this mall as much as possible so that I could basically not have to be outside every day, which is yeah, kind I'm of sure funny. It's a much more controlled environment, but also, yeah, it gives it a central sort of town square yes. kind of thing, a medieval market. So that, you know, the the stores and movie theaters and pizza places that they work in uh, and when they encounter each other. And there's so many great scenes, you know, Damone's kind of five tips on dating <laughs> takes place there. And, um, you know, Stacy and Rats, you know, what do you do with the stuff people leave? Yeah. You know, lost and found scene. <laughs> so you know, good. the whole tickets thing kind of, I got Earth, Wind and Fire tickets for you. Hey, that's a good-looking kid talking about his brother. Um, <laughs> it's just great to have it all sort of localized. It is. Like a village. It's not claustrophobic because, yeah. you know, they go to people's houses and, you know, there's stuff in, with Mr. Hand in school and stuff like that. But that's the kind of social hub, which was interesting to me because I'm an East Coaster and you know, mall life wasn't something that, you know, I'd grown up looking at commercials in California and just being like, what a weird environment, you know, people driving big wheels down kind of, you know. Big wheels are rolling, listen to them turn. The big wheel sound of power with speed enough to burn. Winning, spinning, braking. The big wheel by Marks with adjustable seat. Handy saddlebag and a quick stop racing brake. Braking, winning, spinning. It's the big wheel with saddlebag and racing brake. Big wheel by Marks. If we make it, it can take it. Like massive street. I mean, anyway, I think it was a really good call on her part. And, and gave her uh, a little uh, shout out at the end. She says to Mean Streets, which is like one of her favorite films. Um, you know, at the end of Mean Streets, after all this bloodshed has happened, after all these terrible things have happened, it closes where people are closing up the street. The shops are closing, locking the doors. And she does the exact same thing at the end where the shops in the mall are finally being closed down. And uh, that's her little homage to Mean Streets, which is her other big cinematic touchstone, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, that's funny. 
when when this was in development, Cameron Crowe and the uh, film executive Tom Mount sent the script to David Lynch first. That was their first choice. Not sure why. Lynch responded by saying, uh, this is funny, but this is not really my kind of material. And so they were continuing to look for other directors. And they saw a short film that Amy had made uh, in New York called Getting It Over With. And I think that must have something to do with losing one's virginity. And when they saw that, they knew that she was kind of perfect for the material. Um, But this is still a time in Hollywood where that's not a typical choice to be made to have a female director. So I think that's pretty impressive on all of their part to give that opportunity to her. Totally. It was a risk. Um, I mean, you know, why somebody would send it to David Lynch. Uh, (laughs) He wasn't the David Lynch everybody knows now, but like... What, very what would you see in a racer head that makes you think he'd be right for fast times at Ridgemont? I don't know. It's about naivety. <laughs> and, uh, he must've been under contract at universal. I don't know. Before we get to the cast, the, there were alternative castings that were attempted with Ralph Macchio and Scott Bayo. One of the Amy Heckerling's. And design- Broderick, right? Matthew I didn't read Broderick. about Broderick. Was he one of the, he was probably too young then, wasn't he? Was he around then? No, I think he, I think he turned it down. Oh, did he? Well, she really wanted Scott Bayo, who was a big star at the time. I know it's hard to think think that that was the to case. Play Ratner. The studio didn't want stars in the film, so that's how they ended up going with all of these this generation of actors, as you refer to, that they were pretty lucky to to have uh, read. And originally, I think Anthony Edwards and Stoltz, particularly Stoltz, gave really almost a stronger reading for Spicoli than Sean Penn did. It was very hard for them in a way not to cast Eric Stoltz because he was coming in in, in a traditional actor way, presenting a, a fully formed character for them that they could make a judgment on. Whereas Sean Penn was not doing that at all. He withheld what he was going to do from Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling to the point where he wouldn't even really audition in character. And he just kept telling them, don't worry, I'm going to show up. It's going to be there. Have no fear. You go someplace and meet a lot of people. Um, And then some people are just going to make you go, wow, that's an amazing person. Not just like, how good is their acting? Right. Because there's a lot of wonderful actors that just aren't stars or you just don't want to watch. They're not compelling. Um, Sean Penn, the first time I saw him, he was sitting on the floor. I was walking into the casting office and he was on the floor and he looked up at me and went, wow. (laughs) You know? he is that magnetic. Now, the casting person had just seen him, and I think actually um, Cameron Crowe had seen him, and they were like, oh, you got to see this guy. So he obviously was making a very deep impression. Um, he read the part. He was just so amazingly, you know, you're just drawn to him and his presence. That And he was obviously very intelligent, and you knew he would figure it out. He would get the research, he would do the stuff, I mean, and he did, and he would send me like, here's a checkered van, what do you think? You know, just, you know, like, Like yeah. every aspect of that yeah. character? Yeah, you know, he brought in a lot of the vocabulary. He came in one day, we were doing um, Mr. Vargas Holds Up the Heart. So we, you know, the line was like, oh, bitchin. And then <laughs> I said, let's, you know, just do a bunch in a row, just hold the heart, and every time it comes up, it was over the heart onto him. Say some, you know, just say whatever. It's like, whoa, gnarly, whoa, tubular, whoa, awesome. I just, 
he had 50 words for it. And you just go, wow, oh, this guy. Um, so that proves to be a huge stroke of luck as well. I think the two yeah. people that steal this movie to me are Sean Penn and Ray Walston. Oh, yeah. And I think what's amazing about Penn is I think that it wasn't even seen as a major role. I think he yeah. makes a signature role. He has way fewer lines than than Ratner mm -hmm. or Damone or Hamilton or any of the girls. But he turns it into a signature piece. You know, it's spiced throughout for atmosphere, you know, at these key points. But, you know, the scenes with Mr. Hand, which obviously everybody's read were controversial and mm -hmm. pissed off Ray Walston and there was improvising and he found that irritating when <laughs> Ben would make up kind of you dick. Yeah. He makes it into something that's huge. And so he's in the poster and that's what you're going to see mm -hmm. like a stoner surfer guy. And he's not a major role. I mean, it, you know, he, it's him passing history. Yeah. You know, history is that entire kind of thing. And him, you know, but he gets these great, delightful things like ordering pizza and being locked out and, you know, Mr. Hand coming to his bedroom and stuff. Yeah. I, I think Cameron Crowe says that he thought at one point they would have to just end up finding an actual kid to play Spicoli. Like he just would never be able to find someone who could do the things that he had in mind for what the character could be. And Penn at such a young age sounds like he was so smart. Like they actually wanted to give him more scenes, of course, because of course you're seeing this stuff in the dailies. And though at first uh, the executives had no, like I think the first thing that they, the first shot from Penn that the executive saw was when he walks in with the Hawaiian shirt open and the bagel tucked into the waistband of his yeah. jeans. Wait a minute, there's no birthday party for me here. <laughs> oh, Mr. Han, what's the reason for your truancy? Just couldn't make it on time. You mean you couldn't or you wouldn't? Well, it's like a full crowd scene at the food lines. Food will be eaten on your time. Why are you continuously late for this class, Mr. Spicoli? Why do you shamelessly waste my time like this? I don't know. <laughs> and again, they were just like, what, what the fuck is, what is he doing? This isn't funny. Who is this? It's almost in a way like Sean Penn was in a different movie than the one they were making, but then he right. ended up making their movie better by being in his own movie where he's taking Spicoli really, really seriously. And he's not winking at the audience um, and he's not playing down to Spicoli. You know what I mean? Like Spicoli is. No, he's just funny and eccentric too. The scene where, you know, his dream sequence fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Let me ask you a question. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's a way of life, no hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, <laughs> let's party. Uh, where'd you get this jacket? I got this in the network. Let me ask you a question. What's next for Jeff Spicoli? You know, where he's with the Playboy yeah. Bunny and Stu Nayan, you know. It's like, <laughs> where'd you get that jacket? <laughs> like, I got this from the network. Do you think you'll, uh, you know, uh, and then that politically incorrect thing they could never do now where he's like, 
Those guys are fags. Yeah, there's a there's it's shot through with the little I, I noticed this in another film I watched recently where the sort of just toss off homophobia was so prevalent. Um and you know, the the very first scene in the movie, there's a guy tacks a sign on the back of another kid that says I'm a homo. And very yeah. pointedly in the Criterion uh, commentary track, Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling are just kind of drop out. They're silent over that moment. They, I, I thought they were going to address it and sort of be like, yeah, uh, Amy Heckerling does often address uh, something she didn't have anything to do with, which are the animal noises that the studio put over Forrest Whitaker's football scenes, um, which reads as pretty uncomfortably racist in almost any era and it's another little kind right, of where he just becomes purely sort of beast. Yeah. They're, it's like, they're putting, they're literally putting like gorilla noises over him uh, when he's going to kill on the football field. Um, so there's some, there's some of that stuff that's through. Uh, but again, that's arguably the, the, the homo stuff, the fag stuff is probably it's truthful. I'm sure to the time and to crows, you know, reporting or being embedded into the school, but it, it plays a little strangely. Yeah, that casual homophobia yeah. was just a feature. Yeah, you know, and that people were like, sort of, it was expected. But but again, so with Penn, it's nice that it stands out as unacceptable now. With Penn, um, I can't watch him enough in this film. It's amazing to hear over and over again Cameron Crowe and Amy on the commentary track say, "That's a Sean Penn improv." That's a Sean. That's an idea that Sean came up with. The bagel in the pants is Sean's idea. The scene in the bus where he falls out of the the smoky van is Sean's idea. Hey, I know that dude is a Sean Penn improv. Um, it's just amazing that he's twenty two. It's incredible. He hasn't been in a lot of stuff, and he already know. I mean, his father was a successful yeah. director, mother an actress, but that he just takes this idea like you can make shit up. Yeah. You know, on your first movie with like a lot of professionals yeah. there, it's like, I'm just going to fucking make shit up. What are they going to do? You know? And how about, and be better. Being, how about being, having the presence of mind, not only to make shit up, but to refuse additional scenes because you know, it's going to play better if you just appear every so often. Yeah. Like that's that, have the presence of mind as an, especially as an actor. My God. I mean, isn't the whole point to be on screen as much as possible, regardless of whether it's right for the story or not at 22. Could you imagine having the presence of mind to say like, no, no, I don't, I don't think you should film that. I think I should, I should stay away from the movie and then come back in at the coda, you know, like to know that at that age, which he did. Um, and I also love, I, I saw a take. There's somebody sort of praising Spicoli as, as a Buddha because uh, and it's a joking take, but it also has a serious undertone because if you look at every scene, he is ultimately present, Spicoli. He's he's never somewhere else. He's exactly where he is. In all those scenes with Mr. Hand, with everyone, he's he's never working another agenda. He's completely present in, in the Buddhist way. He's with you in the moment in such an incredible way. He's also the only sort of teenager character in in the plot who who doesn't have anxiety right you know it's like he's befuddled he's confused he's pissed a couple of times mm -hmm. like oh man like you tore up my car you know yeah but he doesn't have the kind of anxiety that the others have because nope. all he needs is tasty waves yeah. cool brews and um he's fine you know yeah and it's like, why don't you get a job spicola it's like why <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, everyone else has anxiety about having to work, mm -hmm. dating, having to sex, having to, you know, whether you have to break up with your girlfriend or stay together or, you know, he's just fucking fine. It's, it's a sort of aspirational state of mind that, you know, would translate to kind of uh, Big Lebowski and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, lots of things. They, they did say that, um, of course, the Universal executives saw Spicoli. And the first time that the executive, Tom Mount, saw the f completed film, he turned to Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling and said, hey, guys, Spicoli goes to college. I mean, again, to resist that, which they all did like that, they would have greenlit a sequel, a Spicoli sequel right away. And, che right. and, and cheapened they did try this a TV you know? show just like they tried, you know, Delta House. Yes. For Animal House, not knowing that those things, you know, are always terrible. I want to single out four specific pen moments for people to watch when they watch the film again, because luckily for the podcast, I get a lot of comments that people rewatch the films after they listen to the episodes, which is a great compliment. So I want you to watch for these. Uh, these are everyone knows the famous Spicoli lines. So you're going to appreciate those. But I want you to watch these because I think these lesser known moments are part of the utter genius of, of Sean Penn's performance as Spicoli. The first one is when his brother comes into his room the first time, Sean Penn is doing one of my favorite actor things, which he's sleeping in character. Watch the way Penn's body is oriented on his bed. He's sleeping on his face with in this bizarre sort of, he's like humped up on the bed. And it's clear that he thought through how Spicoli would be sleeping slash passed out. Even that is genius. That's one. My ultimate favorite Spicoli moment is at the very last scene in the film where Brad is working at the Mighty Mart and the excellent burglar comes in with the gun hopped up and and is going to rob the Mighty Mart. And we know that Spicoli has gone to the bathroom and he's not in the scene when the robber comes in. But just as Spicoli goes to the bathroom, he asks Brad, can I use your bathroom and Brad looks at him and like, you can tell that Brad's not supposed to let the customer use the bathroom. And then he's Brad kind of looks at him and is like, okay, Spicoli, you can use it. First door on the left. Watch what Sean Penn does. As Brad says to him, first door on the left, Penn is standing in the hallway. It's very clear. First door on the left means what first door on the left. And Penn does the most brilliant, like confused, Right here, like he can't figure out where the first door on the left is. And again, this is not something that Sean Penn is doing in a Porky's comic way. He's doing it in a in a genuinely present, believably confused acting manner. Like it's a serious acting moment that is, again has the maturity to understand that playing it straight is so much funnier than playing it for the wink. It's incredible to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such good physical acting. And then he, you know, when he comes out. He has a genuine kind of appreciation yes. for Hamilton. Whoa, oh, right, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Credit where credit is due. And the other, the, the last, uh, the second to the last one is when Mr. Hand sends the guys out to find Spicoli. And the one student rats Spicoli and says, he, I saw him over by the fruit machines or the food machines. And he says, go get him. So he goes out and he brings Spicoli back in and Penn comes in the door and he goes, hey, wait a minute. There's no birthday party for me here. <laughs> if that he could be, you know, it's it's probably not his birthday. So the yeah. idea. He's gullibility. He he's willing. Be enticed. He's willing. To, uh, 
And my absolute favorite one, again, this is kind of like the two, my two favorite Spicoli scenes are the Mighty Mart bathroom scene and the one I'm about to mention, both nonverbal. Uh, it's the scene at the end where contrary to all the previous scenes in Mr. Han's classroom, Spicoli is present, sitting, and fully attentive and smiling. And he's wearing that little like Mexican Serape sweatshirt that yeah. everyone had. And it's just this shot of him smilingly attentive to Mr. Han. It's, I don't know why, it gets me every time. It's so freaking hilariously brilliant. <laughs> the whole arc of that relationship too oh is Oh my great. God. So by the end, when Han is in his room, there's a tender moment there where is. it's like, Mr. Han, do you have a student like me? <laughs> You'll um, find out, Mr. Spicoli. No way. Yeah, and I love his thing with his little brother. Like, <laughs> I don't hear you unless you knock, Curtis. Oh, my um, God. Now, in the book, Spicoli has six siblings. This, these, the, Now, again, I, I would be interested to talk to Cameron Crowe. I, I I've read a couple of places. I, I don't know the veracity of the book. I mean, I think he said that there are characters are amalgams of people. Like there isn't, you know, necessarily one Spicoli or one Stacy per se. Some of them, maybe there are. There's some scenes in the book where you have to wonder kind of like, did he, did he just make this up based on the influence of being in the milieu of the teenage life? We don't know, but Spicoli's father was in the book, a TV repairman. Although it was, I think an improv when when Penn says to says to the brother after they wrecked the after they wrecked the car, Forrest Whitaker's car, where he says, My my old man's a TV repairman, he's got a bitchin' set of tools. I think that was yeah. a, I think that was a throwaway. Um but yeah. I think they made a concerted effort to not have them have families. Yes. Um, you know, to not to not go into the back of these characters. They're fully formed as like these lone mm -hmm. people that are fending against all these challenges of adolescence without the help of, you know, Stacy and Brad, you know, are siblings. But uh, for the most part, they're, it's, you know, it just signifies how alone you are as an adolescent. That, you know, there are other things like Valley Girl where the parents, mm -hmm. you know, are giving advice and, and, this is like they're on their own and they're each other's best friend and advisors. Um, Phoebe Cates, you know, is the kind of female Robert Romanus, you know, right. she's been there. She knows it. she's giving advice, but you know, parents aren't there to help out. And it also, it's smart. I think Cameron Crowe said it, you know, they have jobs, they're navigating relationships. They're, they're, they're living adult lives as teens. That was sort of the thing that was so novel at the time for even the book was presenting these lives as all of the things that just happen within the lives of the kids. And there were parental things that happened uh, in his book, but in the movie, I think it was so smart to, to focus on that. Such a contrast to later generations. You know, right. they have yeah, jobs, negotiated yeah. relationships, they have empathy, you know, compared to millennials, you know, <laughs> who won't have jobs, are unempathetic, <laughs> are always on their phones, aren't kind of help. you know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, that's one thing that makes it really nostalgic and sweet and kind of uh, like a tender thing to look back on. It'd be hard to think of a millennial Stacy having an abortion without her mom knowing, you know, like, or driving her there, right? Like... And having a nice brother who says, like, oh, don't worry, I won't tell. Yeah, kind of. that's a great moment. Um, that's a good moment for Brad. Or even, 
you know, that Damone eventually apologizes. I'm sorry. I know I'm an asshole. Well, um, you know, the Damone, I've always, I think about this with Damone, and this may be a Robert Romanus charm issue that's like, because I think he threw in that part. Is it after Rat confronts him after he slept with Stacy and Rat is pissed off in the gym, in the gym locker room? And they have this kind of showdown where Damone realizes that he's really fucked up and he's hurt his best friend and he gets told off by Rat. And then at the end of that scene, which I think is so brilliant, but also kind of countercultural, he goes, Woke up in the great moon and I woke up today and someone was in a great mood. Like you, <laughs> he makes you, he does terrible things. Like he impregnates Stacy and doesn't show up with the money or the ride yet. He like, tries, he tries, he tries to call. He, he tried to raise the money, but I mean, you could show up, goes, sir. you could show up without the money at least. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's just such a weird moment because is it the complexity of Damone where he's all these things? And that's kind of the point of the movie is like, they all get to be messy and complicated and they screw up. And yet it's just I mean, teenage life. Comeback. He yeah. does a scummy thing. It's fucked up. You know, people behave like that in yeah. high school. But he's, um, he's allowed to have that charm moment of like, I woke up today. I was in a great mood. I mean, it's just something about his delivery and his, his otherness, because he doesn't read like he's I don't think they explain in the movie what they do in the book, which is that the Damone character was a transplant from Philadelphia. So that's why he has that kind of East Coast attitude and accent. Whereas in the movie, it's just sort of presented. He's Damone. Like, I don't think he talks right. about his, you know, and of course, his brothers that that actor Richard Romanus, who's Melfi's ex-husband and future husband. That's his father. I, th I thought it was his older brother. It's his no, father. I think it's his father, yeah. They've got a resemblance. I always thought it was amazing in the Damone sort of retribution scene that, you know, Linda Barrett, the Phoebe Cates character, who's backing up her friend, manages to get to his house, deface <laughs> his car, get back to school, write little prick on his locker, too. <laughs> Well, it's funny you mention that because the, in the very big, in the opening montage, right, there's the gum scene on the locker with Rat where he gets coated in gum because someone has put gum in his locker. That right. scene and kind of the one you're talking about are the two moments where the movie is allowed to have a little of that sort of fantastical, we're not in a real world environment teen movie stuff. Like you can get away with that, right? Like if Rat really was covered in gum like that, he wouldn't be able to then appear normal in the scene that follows. But you're allowed that license in a teen comedy kind of montage, I think. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, I wanted to talk about uh, Richard Romanus brother. It is his way. brother. Wow. That's crazy. I always um, thought he was his father. I love Richard. I love um, all the Romanuses in the acting clan. I mean, it's a great, it's a it's very a great dynasty. It's a dynasty. It's a very specific delivery, right? I wonder if any, um, does Richard Romanus have kids that can continue? Is there a third generation or a second generation? I guess if they're brothers, it's unfortunate. I wish their father was an actor too, but. They, at Family Guy, Robert Romanus came to do a voice. And there were other people there from like Princess Bride, Carrie Elwes and stuff. Oh uh, yeah, I love him. And I was focused you were entirely focused. <laughs> on Simone. And uh, did you get to take his track or did, like, did you get to record him or did you write for him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he was great and he was awesome. You know, I was careful because he, you know, I knew that everybody he ever encounters 
asks in him his life. Yeah. Asks yeah. him to say kind of, I come here for the strudel. Hey, Mark. Mike. Is that you? Yeah, hi. You come here? Yeah, I come for the strudel. It's great. See, do do people really ask actors to say, I would never do, I see, okay, if I'm in that situation, I want to ask them about the experience of making the movie. Yes. But they all say that people approach them all the time and ask them to say lines, which to me would be horrifying to ask someone to do that. Hey, Sean. Oh man. Would you do me a favor? Would you say you dick? Apparently people do that to actors all the time. Just like Mr. Bogart, could you say play it again, Sam? <laughs> That's like the lamest thing you could do to an actor. Like it's one thing to sort of figure out in a moment to say, "Man, you were so good in Fast Times." I just got to say, like you could throw that off if even if you're, I mean, you know, if you're working with him at Family Guy, you're probably not supposed to have any, you know, conversational kind of asides of that sort, right? Well, you know, um, you're supposed to loosen them up and make yeah. them relax, but yeah, to be a weird fawning dick. <laughs> Would be frowned upon. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, Ray Walston, who who I think clearly when I watched the film these couple of times to prep for this, to me, it's the, the film is stolen by Spicoli and equally stolen by Ray Walston, which is crazy considering how old Ray Walston was when he's making this and how out of step with what the movie is about he really is. And really as the only fully fledged adult character of note, aside from you know. Good day, everyone. My name is Mr. Vargas. Look, I'm a little slow today. I just switched to Sanka, so have a heart. Vincent Schiavelli uh, or other kind of, you know, people that have one scene or two scenes. Originally, Amy Heckerling wanted Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn. Because in the book, much is made of the size of Mr. Hand, who does not physically resemble Ray Walston in Cameron Crowe's sketching of him. He ends up being perfect. I mean, that he was a Shakespearean actor. I mean, I, of course, loved him from My Favorite Martian. Yes. But, you know, he's somebody who was in, you know, uh, Shakespeare and Canterbury Tales and has a kind of very actorly, you know, slightly English delivery. Yes. His trim physique is so perfect, too. Right? Like great that he's not trying to be a slightly hip teacher. No. Just, you know, I don't know. Fred Fred turned it down because he thought the material was too salacious. So the Munsters apparently was a little higher brow for Fred than Fast <laughs> Times. He regretted it and did Fatal Attraction. <laughs> at, uh, Michael Douglas's firm. You mentioned before that uh, Sean Penn and Ray Walston famously did not get along during the filming because you have these two completely different generations clashing uh, but of course it worked. Penn would, would intentionally improv to try to throw off uh, Mr. Hand. I think in this scene where he finally, where, where the take they used is him saying, you dick. This guy's been stumped since the third grade. Yes? Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey, may I come in? Oh, please. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. Yeah, I know that, dude. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. 
Yeah, you're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! One of his improvs, I guess when they're, you know, when he's on set, uh, but not on camera filming his, when, when they're filming like Ray Walston's close-ups and he's off camera feeding the lines. One time Sean Pence called him, you red-faced motherfucker. And Walston got so pissed off, he like walked off the set and, and went to Amy Heckling and said, you tell that young man I do not need his help. And just was, <laughs> thought it was so unprofessional to, to veer from the script to your point about his classical training. But man, his performance is as good and as completely in character as Sean Penn's is. C, D, F, F, F. Three weeks we've been talking about the Platt Amendment. What are you people? On dope? A piece of legislation was introduced into Congress by Senator John Platt. It was passed in 1906. This amendment to our Constitution has a profound impact upon all of our... Where is Jeff Spicoli? I saw him earlier today near the first floor bathrooms. Is he still on campus? Anyone? So it's so funny to me that they clashed because in a way they're doing the same level of commitment. Just one is coming from a very unfussy traditional school where he maybe just happens to completely resemble the part and carry himself perfectly neatly to portray this uptight teacher who's out of touch with the kids. I don't know if it's just perfect casting or he's just a pro yeah. that he showed up ready to do that. I'd love to know if he came to believe that it worked or he just looked back. You mean Penn's process? Completely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wonder if Walston just got to a point when he watched the film and was like, you know what? It's the chemistry is there. Uh, oh, he, I, he, he like, yes, he did. What an annoying boy. No, no, he, he, uh -huh. he got there. He got there. He said, he says complimentary things uh, in the featurette on the, on the criterion. So he, he's fully, he fully owns that he had just never been on a set with an actor who approached something. I mean, imagine you're Ray Walston and you're in this movie. Like let's, you have to remember what people might have thought it was at the time they were making it. This is not like, you know, he's probably grateful for the job at the time. Right. right. Um, he's probably thinking if he's honest to himself, like this is what I've been reduced to. I'm appearing in this teen comedy. Um, but his commitment he, he is just, so good. Probably just, it was about professionalism. Yeah. It was about don't work this way. Who do you think of the cast traveled farthest? like is the most amazing journey from from this movie I mean, anthony edwards and stoltz from their tiny parts did pretty well um absolutely well nick cage i would say nick cage, you can miss him just a sort of burger prep guy yeah he was too um, young apparently uh, he lied about his age and i think they were thinking seriously about using him for spicoli but he was only 17 and so somehow they figured that out and they weren't able to work with him in the way they would be able to work with an 18 year old under the labor laws at the time. Um, in a way, in terms of credibility, learning what I did about Phoebe Cates, where she came from, in a way you have to give her a lot of credit for becoming a respected theater actor later in life. Right. And 
you know, she was a model. I mean, she was 17 when she was starting to work and, you know, had been exploited in a previous film. I don't remember the film, but basically she had like a nude scene thrust upon her when she was 17 years old in a film she had done prior to this and had been a model since something like a really insanely young age, like 10 years old or something crazy. Um, And she's really good in this and she's really perfect as that character. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I've talked about the nude scene with people, you know, when the dream sequence where Mm -hmm. she's, or the fantasy sequence where she's on the diving board Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, it sounds exploitative and chauvinistic to say, but, but when you talk about what the movie would be like without that scene, yeah, I'm that's, I, you know, to a male and female, you know, that's, that's added value. I well, mean, in terms of the riskiness of the whole thing, of the realism of a sort of male yes. fantasy, and it's not gratuitous at no. all. It's a, it's a flash. But I, I mean, totally agree with you. I think it's actually Amy. There, Amy Heckling tells the story where Phoebe Cates was so self possessed already at the time she filmed this, and she can't have been. I think she was nineteen when they made this movie. She didn't want to do that scene, even though it had been in the script. She came to Amy Heckling and said, "You don't need it." You don't need that scene. It doesn't add anything. And Amy <laughs> said she found herself for the first time on the set sort of on the suits side of things because she was aware that they needed it for the more prurient reason of the teen. Ma- there's there's going to be teen boys are coming to see this movie. And we're kind of aware that we're not giving them what they think they're going to get based on how the how Universal is going to sell this. So we need to give them this. But to your point, I think, it's actually the 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 Judge Reinhold side of that scene balances that out to me because his his the, the truth of his teen maleness and the way it's portrayed and the fact that the joke is really on him it's not on her she's not the butt of that oh she wins she that wins scene. and she's not the butt of the you joke see her perfect body but he's caught jerking off I yeah mean, like what if you if you had that loser. scene but it wasn't a dream scene. Right. And it was just a gratuitous topless scene. It would be kind of terrible. It would be like, yeah, it's an exploitative scene, but because it's couched the way that it is, and it's in the book, by the way, which is the one scene that people go like, well, how did Cameron Crowe, was he present for that? Like, how does he know uh, that this occurred? So I don't know whether that story was told to him or what, but it is, it is pretty verbatim in the book as, as it is on the film. Uh, But then, so they, they talked her into it, quote unquote, or explained to her like why they needed it. Um, so it doesn't play that way. Just like, I don't think Jennifer Jason Lee's nudity plays exploitatively. It's, it's more poignant, no. but she's great. So I was going to say, when you said who's come the farthest, yeah, obviously like Nick Cage, Anthony Edwards for sure. But you know, Phoebe Cates went on and had sort of before she really kind of stopped working and I think concentrated on her family. She, oh, even Princess Caribou, relatively light. She's great. She's great. And she turned herself into a legit actor and a stage actor. And, and uh, I think came far from that, too. So um, you have to give her credit. A lot for that. of minor characters went on to kind of solid sort of uh, TV series, sitcom, soap opera, mm-hmm. you know, Amanda Wiss, you know, <laughs> all these people that are, you know, Brad's girlfriend. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about people you didn't maybe know were in the movie, because maybe some of the viewers don't know this. Uh, that, well, Nancy Wilson from Heart. Ann Wilson. Heart. Ann Wilson. Not Nancy. Ann. Ann, okay. Ann is the one married to Cameron. Unless I'm wrong, as wrong about that as I would about Richard Romanus being Robert Romanus's father. Pretty sure it's uh, Ann Wilson. 
Okay. Maybe you're right. No, I think it is Nancy. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Cameron. uh, Nancy's the guitar player. Um, Okay, then it's Nancy. It's Nancy. But, you know, I'd also, I mean, this is slightly on the side thing, but Brian, is it Brian Backer? Yeah, the rat. the, The rat. He was apparently the most experienced New York State yes, actor. He was that everybody was kind of intimidated by. <laughs> and he's totally adequate as yes. a sort of flubby nerd. Yes. You no, know, but he's kind of blown off the screen by the charisma. I mean, it's kind of the limitations of the role. He's perfect. He's great. And he's sweet and innocent. But I mean No, you have to have him. He stars. he has to be himself just as he is in this film. Hi. Yeah. What can I do for you? Yeah, I had a couple of questions. I was curious. What do you do with the jackets that people leave here? We keep them. You keep them? In case you come back. You can look through it if you want. No, that's cool. It would take too long to look through all that stuff. I'll just, I'll pick up a new one. What was your other question? Oh, uh, my other question is, can I have your phone number so I can ask you out sometime? Do you have a pen? This one's out of ink. Yeah. Come on, at the very end where she's like waving to him across the mall and he's standing by himself at the balcony and she, and he, he turns around to be like, me? Like, is there someone standing behind me that you're beckoning? Yeah. It's just so good. I mean, he's probably the character I most identify with with my own high school experience. So that's probably why I give him the benefit of that doubt. But yes, Nancy Wilson is the girl in the car that sort of is flirting with Brad until Brad realizes he's wearing the ridiculous pirate outfit. And she uh, was, and I believe remains Cameron Crowe's wife and is the guitar player from Heart. Bruce Springsteen's sister, Pamela, is in the film. And Pamela Sean- Springsteen, I'm glad you said he was a sister, not not his mom. <laughs> I got that one that. right. Apparently, um, Sean Penn was kind of in love with her and protected her during i remember reading that yeah you know she's in the cheerleader scene right she is and it's her i think it's really bullshit you know which is a great scene by the way and it's also her ass that the camera follows down the hallway during the kind of like kill lincoln scene sort of thing and that's the scene where sean was kind of all over amy heckerling being like well how are you doing this like you know, uh-huh. and I think, and I think eventually she's wearing like a sweatshirt tied around her waist that covers her butt because he didn't want her ass exploited in the film. Um, Hilarious, which is pretty funny. And then here's a, here's a here's a note you'll appreciate with your dark, twisted sense of humor. How about Lana Clarkson as Mrs. Vargas? One of rock and roll's legendary music producers is a murder suspect tonight. Right now, Phil Spector is out of jail after posting $1 million bail. He's accused of shooting a woman to death in his suburban Los Angeles home. Very sad, yeah. she's At the time, it's like, wow, what a hot wife Vincent Schiavelli has. You know, that's the joke that this kind yes. of completely weird-looking <laughs> sort of... Um, you know, uh, anatomy. Like Mar- Marfan syndrome having a science teacher. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the very sad thing that she was murdered by Phil Spector. Yes. In um, 2003, she's the woman who was shot and killed by Phil Spector in the lobby of his Los Angeles mansion. She's very good, actually. She, she obviously only has one scene in the film, but she nails it. And they tell the funny story that when they were casting it, uh, they had a, a group of actresses and they told Schiavelli, uh, just you can pick one. Like, it's not an important enough role. Like, you can go and pick one. Of course, he picked the most gorgeous knockout bombshell 
uh, that had auditioned, which was Lana Clarkson. So that's a bit of a sad, it's a also sad coda. Sad sort of Hollywood thing that it like, really is so gross. Total babe sort yeah. of ends Ugh. up at sort of 46 being a hostess at House of Blues or something. Yeah. And um, like creepy Phil Spector picking her up and ugh, just terrible. Who else on the cast do we want to single out here? Uh, of course, you know, Tom Nolan who? As, uh, as Dennis Taylor. Mr. Hamilton, did you threaten this customer or use profanity in any way? Uh, why? Well, he insulted me first. He called me a moron, Dennis. Answer me. Did you threaten this customer or use profanity in any way? Yes. You're fired. I'm very sorry, sir. I'll refund your money right now. Hope you won't hold this against us. You know how these young kids are these days. Here we are. Perhaps another breakfast. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, I'll talk to Dennis Taylor. Dennis Taylor. Um, how about the guy, kind of the, um, I always think he looks a little bit like Duval, the, ang- the irate free breakfast customer. May I help you? Uh, yes. This is not the best breakfast I ever ate, and I'd like my money back. Uh, okay, uh, I believe you have to fill out a form for that. Uh, no, I'd like my money back now. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You see, I have to fill out a form and, well, you ate most of it already, so... See that sign? It says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Did they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. He's kind of like the... He's like, no, I think I just like my money back. <laughs> it says, it's, the forms. It says guaranteed breakfast. This was not the best breakfast I ever had. I like my money two seventy five back now, please. He's kind of got the little hand in the register. <laughs> take it out. Uh, um, and it, he's just riding him in such a way that he's you know. What about Judge Reinhold? Doesn't really get a lot of credit for being great in this film ever. I don't think people great. people don't talk about great. him because of his maybe the is he kind of in a thankless role in a way as the older brother. Well, it's like certain kind of high school type who's kind of yeah um together. A car owner has a jo- always has a job, thinks of himself as like just a completely sort of got it all right. kind of put together. He's Probably not the underdog. Like what? Everyone else is kind of an underdog, right? He's the only top dog, even though he gets he gets his he gets his comeuppance. He gets broken up with. He loses his job. He's reduced to working at the Mighty Mart. And dealing with Spicoli in a robbery, but I think just as a viewer, your your allegiance is always going to lie with the the rats and the Spicolis and the Stacys more so than with you know the Judge Reinhold part or the Phoebe Cates part, like the the supposed got it all together kids, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, that are considered nerdy, but you know um, he's probably on you know in the yearbook on yeah. kind of several clubs and I mean, Forrest Whitaker, it's not a really challenging role, but he's fucking great. He is great. Um, I heard when he got the role, he just kind of skipped and ran and clapped and did pirouettes in the park. Yeah. He was so happy. She, she told that story at the screening I saw and she tells it also on the DVD that, 
you know, just as a director and sort of being involved in casting that so rarely do you get to see someone to see it mean something. And also that I don't know if they'd had the part written out. So there weren't really lines for him to audition with. So he auditioned with this incredible monologue from the play streamers, which maybe he had, wow. ju- maybe he had just done. I don't know, but he, he can't, he comes in for this teen movie and he kind of blows it, blows everyone away with this incredible monologue from this like serious, you know, play about, uh, was it like a veteran veterans or is it a Vietnam war play? I can't remember what streamers is about. It's also like, you know, this is like a white school yeah. in the Valley. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, like a black, a giant black dude has been like recruited. Yes. You know, I hear they fly him in for games, you know, yeah. and all he, he just has to be intimidating. You know, it's actually really cool in the book. Well, not cool. It's, it's sad. It's actually like a, a very Friday night lights precursor, aspect of the book is that in the book, this character has it all because of his football ability. He's being recruited by, I think, USC, which is huge at the time, is being offered a full scholarship and blows it, like doesn't care enough about the football program in high school. He starts not showing up and he kind of gets lost and he loses his scholarship and sort of falls by the wayside in the way of so many sort of promising athletic talents can can do. And so it's kind of poignant in the book to read that section. And of course, when they made the jump to it becoming a screenplay, that just wasn't really going to, they weren't going to get that real in this movie. It's, right. It still had to fit the confines of the, of the teen film. Well, you know, he just needs to serve one purpose to be the kind of true badass jock. Um, Cause they don't really service kind of, you know, the jock world any more than that. He's just, no, all just such stoners. And yeah. I mean, it's not as, you know, yeah, um, there's more, there's more jock characters in the book. There's like one guy, uh, Steve something, who's like a soccer superstar at the high school and they follow him. Uh, but I, I think they wisely focused on the, the, the more fumbling aspects of, of the high school life. Yeah, exactly. I think they just need him to, you know, cause there's, that is a great scene, the football scene. And even the stoners show up and cheer. Yes. I always thought that was funny, you know, that Stoltz and all those guys are just like, yeah. Um, yeah. I like that sense. Like the, you know, this is pre uh, subdivisions, right? Like we're not so separated as I think we were maybe in the, like when I went to high school in the uh, early eighties, it was all subdivisions. Like you didn't cross those lines. When, when did you go to high school? Were you, were you in the early 80s? I was in high school, like 76, 77, 78. Okay, so was so, it more like this movie where everyone totally was kind of together? Like yeah. Like, I was a stoner. I had long hair and a ponytail. Yeah. But we would get high and go to go to football games. And right. It was like a little bit done mildly ironically, but we were into it. And yeah. Cheer, and cheerleaders were cute. And mm-hmm. everybody's participated, you know, in the John Hughes universe. You know, it was much more of a sort of economic divide mm-hmm. and like this guy's dad's a kind of um, construction worker and he doesn't yeah, hang out with yeah. kind of rich lawyer dad. And all those, you know, that sort of set the scene for, uh, you know, everything from John Hughes thing, some some kind of wonderful 10 Things I Hate About You. I mean, all those movies yeah. um, had a kind of class division that this didn't have in a right. very sweet way. It's not even something that occurs. No, like, well, I, mean, I think also there it, it's what's great about it and unique is it's not a it's not a Beverly Hills high school movie. 
This is the valley. And, and that's part of the saving grace that doesn't really hit people over the head when they watch it. Because if you're not from Los Angeles, that distinction is maybe lost on viewers. They just view it as a teen movie that's set in California or set in Los Angeles. But the fact that it's in the valley is, I think, why you can have that classlessness, because they're really all the same. Like, yeah, the, the, like you said, the king of the hill is the guy who works at um, uh, wherever Brad works at the beginning before he loses. Right. The- and like Romanus, you know, um, D- you know, Damone has a kind of some shitty little hatchback. Yeah. But it's not that much cheaper than the vintage LeSabre or whatever <laughs> Hamilton drives. Right. I mean, that's not like a classic car either. No, that's just like, oh, okay, you got a cool old car. Yeah, uh, they all paid less than a thousand dollars for them. And uh, are those the only two cars in the movie? Yeah, I don't. Well, yeah, those are the only two. I mean, you see Jefferson's car, and um, yeah, Jefferson has a nice car and the cruising vessel. Jefferson's and Romanus's that he has to tape off the. Oh, right, the tape on Romanus. Yeah, so I guess there's three cars that you see, but you don't have the so. Sh- aspect you don't have the rich kids you don't have that you're right i think that became more of like a dramatic construct in the hughes movies than it was i mean i guess it depends where you would like where i went to high school everybody was kind of was working class middle class working class we didn't have rich kids in west haven connecticut you know i mean i just remember not being that uh, yeah everybody was sort of upper middle class where mm -hmm. i went you know in chevy chase outside of washington but not being that aware of mm-hmm. money, like mm-hmm. not thinking, oh, my God, they got a nice house. They got a shit. Right. You know? And not being that attentive to like what people's parents did. Right. We all went to parties together. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. Nobody's well, talking a lot about the parents. Like, I think that part they still got right, you know, which is when you're a teenager and you're in high school, like your parents are something to be dealt with rather than part of your life in any material way. Even though they're providing right. your life, but you're just sort of, you're so fixated on your group of friends. I guess the other thing I wanted to comment on, which I think is pretty still starkly impressive today and, and certainly was at the time, is the the way that Stacey's abortion is handled is so impressive for a film of, what, 1981. Her agency in it, to use the contemporary term, even the fact that she kind of lies to the doctor to be released, who's not supposed to release her unless a family member is there to pick her up. And she tells like a little tiny lie, um, like, oh, I I told my boyfriend to meet me downstairs. And the nurse is kind of on to her, but is also going to let her go. Um, It's pretty cool the way they handle it. And then obviously that sort of emotional thing of Brad having seen her cross the street and getting suspicious and doubling back around and figuring out that she's having an abortion and kind of being there for her as a friend and not just as a brother. It's a pretty, it's another great Amy Heckerling directed scene, the way that is portrayed. And in the book, it's a much more, the doctor, the male doctor is a much more of a presence in the the scene. And and I think that she smartly pushed it to kind of be Stacy's experience front and center in a way that still feels pretty right. And the, the psychological overtone isn't heavy handed. It's, it's unpleasant. It's sad. Uh, but it's not like, it's like, this is, yeah. this is something emotional that these kids have to deal with and they do. And there's tenderness and there's like regret, but they don't belabor even that Damone ghosted her and was a dick. It's just no. like they move through these challenges, whether it's first sex or, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
the ramifications of that or drugs or school or jobs or getting fired, you know, they just kind of deal. And some of it's unpleasant, traumatic. There's also like not, not, even though we talked about what would now be sort of, um, you know, unacceptable, Mm -hmm. you know, anti-gay stuff and stuff. There isn't, bullying isn't a huge thing. No, They all sort of move in their separate universes. Jocks aren't calling hippies, you know, dumb stoners. Right. Hippies aren't called, you know, Sean Penn is kind of, oh, that dude's been stoned since the third grade. Yeah. But they're all kind of bemused by him. Yes. Oh, he stands up and sings Wooly Bully, you know, at the prom. <laughs> Those guys go to the prom. Like You're right. Yeah. That's I think that's part of the esprit de corps of the feeling of the of the film. It's an important part of that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention that's funny is of course guys come up to Cameron Crowe and say you mentioned Damone's five rules for picking up girls. And and I think the last rule is uh, before you make out, always put on Led Zeppelin four. And it's a brilliant smash cut into rat and Stacy driving in rats sister's car, which again is like a little Chevette style hatchback or something. And the cut is cashmere Led Zeppelin's cashmere with the brilliant right. hard musical cut into that song. And five. Now, this is most important, Rat. Comes down to making out. Whenever possible, put on side one of Led Zeppelin 4. This is a nice car. Yeah, it's my sister's. Yeah? Do you have a sister in English? Yeah, yeah, she's pretty good. Yeah, she is pretty good. Now, of course, uh, I missed this, but Cameron Crowe mentions it on the on the uh, commentary track, which is that Kashmir is not on Led Zeppelin four, and uh, people come up to him all the time. We're talking about people coming up to, you know, actors and asking them to repeat lines. Dudes apparently come up to Cameron Crowe, you know, rock authority that he is. And they go, man, I can't believe you got that wrong. Like, Kashmir is not on Led Zeppelin 4, man. And he has to explain the whole story, which is that there was a publishing snafu. And it meant that they, Led Zeppelin didn't have the right to give them something off Led Zeppelin 4. But they did have the right to give Kashmir. And, and, and I guess famously... No one gets Led Zeppelin cuts for movie soundtracks. Like to this day, it's not a, they don't right. give, they don't give them out. That's part of the exclusiveness of Zeppelin, and only because of Cameron Crowe's connections to Zeppelin were they even able to get Cashmere, uh, which is so perfectly used, even though it's not. It works great, and you know, <laughs> I don't know. You're not getting the movie if you're like, what the fuck? Are you believing this shit? Apparently, um, there are guys who did that. Of course, right. Wow, what a letdown. I mean, it was good, but, you know, Kashmir, Houses of the Holy. I probably got that wrong, too. People can mock me. I don't, I don't know what Zeppelin album's on. I think it's Houses of the Holy. Physical graffiti. I'm glad it's beloved now. I think Vanity Fair did a pretty good reunion picture of everybody stuffed into a classroom. Oh, did they? I know they did a celebrity re, uh, table read, which I purposely avoided during COVID. I don't know who was in it. It was, it was nobody that was in the movie. It was all new people. Oh, great. So I, um, I was not interested in that, but. Everybody seemed game. You know, there are always people that are refused to return, but yes. um, 
almost everybody did, um, except maybe a couple of people. Is Nick Cage there. in the photo? Uh, Nick Cage. Yeah. I think Sean Penn? Maybe Sean Penn even showed up. That would be the most surprising. But like. No, I think Penn, I think he considers Spicoli worthy of his canon. You know, I think he, he doesn't, I don't think he would look down on it. I think he understands yeah. that's a great performance. One of the great film performances is Jeff Spicoli. I mean, even I would want to see, I would want to see Sean Penn in Spicoli now, Spicoli 2024. I would go see that movie if he did that. Like what became of him? Even a cameo in some kind of- I would see that. Movie. I mean, it's kind of amazing that he doesn't do it or they don't do it, that they resist that low-hanging fruit. But I would, wouldn't you go see like a Spicoli on the other side of 60 kind of- Oh, totally. You know? Um, something Spicoli that, helping out during a terrible <laughs> flood in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, it holds up. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it really it, holds up. It's, it's tender and beautiful. It's a real snapshot of an era that was about to completely change. Mm -hmm. And the music is fantastic. You know, yeah. what they did end up with is really great. I think it's great. I was kind of disheartened to hear how much it sounds like she really disliked all the Eagles stuff and Irving stuff that was forced on the strand. Cause I always thought, uh, the Jackson Brown, she's got to be somebody's baby was perfect in totally. as used i mean it could not be more perfect it contains that beautiful kind of ennui that bittersweetness that contains perfectly what's going on in that scene when it's intercut with her looking at this crappy light and the horrible surf nazi graffiti while she's losing her virginity i mean it, the song works perfectly and that's not it one she wanted with her new york no you know, you ramones or something or blondie yeah it wouldn't have worked and thank you for asking me to talk about it. It's one of my faves. Well, you're always welcome, Ted. I want to uh, encourage the listeners, if you enjoyed, if this is your first Ted, uh, please know that you can go get more Ted in episode 86, The Odessa File, uh, which includes a lot of Ted's signature impersonations of wonderful character actors like Maximilian Schell and uh, John Voight and Rosemary's baby episode 75 is one of my favorites. And more recently deliverance. I thought Ted and I nailed deliverance in episode 124. We really did that movie real justice. Um, that's an episode. A lot of people, uh, have commented on and really appreciate because that's also such a distinctive film of this new Hollywood era. So Ted, thanks again for coming on. And I can't wait to find out what we'll do next. Always great to catch up with you. Awesome. Thank you, man. All right, bud. Talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye.